This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Let me welcome to the show the author of Algorithms of Oppression, Ms. Sophia Noble. Welcome. Thank you so much. So great to be here. Thank you. Um, so before we get into your book and the Algorithms of, of Oppression, who do you think Joe Biden's going to pick and why? <laughs> what mean, do your algorithms tell you? Bath oh, I, I, I wouldn't be mad at that. I wouldn't be mad at that. I don't know. The conversations, you know, we're debating that he's going to pick Kamala Harris, quite frankly. Um, that's kind of what we're, we're guesstimating over here among my friends. But, you know, it's hard to say because I think, you know, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Let's just put it that way, because I wouldn't I don't think the Biden campaign is particularly attuned to how African-Americans see the black women candidates like the range um, I think they just are like black women, check. So, you know, um, hopefully his team will do the due diligence. That's all I can say. Am oh, I lying? You, you, I don't know. No, no, you're making me even more angry because you have people on your team. He has people on his team who could tell him what black people, you know, we're not monolithic, but, you know, we could tell you right. raisins and potato salad, not good. We could tell you certain, you know, we could, we could give you, kind of the recipe for success and either you're not listening to them or they have no power both is troublesome you know problematic because now it's just window dressing now you're playing games and and i i I, the thing i need to figure out and and guys help me out how we can hold people's feet to the water to the fire excuse me only to the water if they're touching something electrical if we could how we can hold somebody accountable when we have never held anybody accountable. So it's, we've never done it. I mean, we had a hard time holding our own black president accountable to us, right? So, I mean, that's a, to me a jumping off point to think about what it means to try to hold others accountable who aren't even walking inside our lived experience. And they know that. Like, you know, we're going to need like a rogue Mike Tyson type political person that's going to, you know, come out of left field. <sighs> but it's, uh, uh, to it's some degree, maybe, maybe it'll be degree, Professor lack Hunter. Of right. Professor Hunter for president. No, it won't be. No, come on. Let's it. do it. I thought I thought y'all love me. OK, <laughs> man, they wouldn't they would let me. Around, we'll be there for you. We'll almost, be there for you. Was almost that. Okay, Delma T. All right, so let's talk about these algorithms. It's Tech Tuesday. And the reason why I invited you in is because it's Tech Tuesday. And, you know, okay. part, I believe that tech is a great equalizer in so many ways. We just haven't. This is one area where we could literally program ourselves out of racism, at least the impact of it, you know, through u- utilizing the technology that's out there. That's the way I see it, you know. And we can make trillionaires and we can be in a position to insulate ourselves, build drones to protect our neighborhoods from any attacks like what happened in Black Wall Street. You know, we can do it like a Star Wars system around our neighbor, like a blanket, a net, a sky net. I just I feel that way, Soraya, uh, Sophia, excuse me. Help me understand your book, first of all. And am I right? Okay. well, first, let's start with the book. I I wrote this book. I started this research about 10 years ago because I had spent 15 years in corporate marketing and advertising. And at the time that I was leaving the advertising industry, 
uh, Google was starting to become a household name. And everyone, and when I went back to graduate school, was talking about Google like it was the new public library. And I thought, well, that's interesting because we were spending thousands and thousands of dollars to optimize our clients' content to get it to the first page of Google search results. And everybody in advertising knew that Google search is an advertising platform, not the public library. So I uh, was trying to think about how can I explain this to the public because this is a dicey proposition to start thinking that all the world's information is, first of all, fair and representative um, and, and accessible, and that anything you find on the first page of a Google search result is accurate. And one of the ways that I started doing that was to study search results about people. And I looked at um, one of the first um, sets of search results that I collected a decade ago was on the search terms black girls, Asian girls, Latina girls. And of course, the whole first page was almost exclusively pornography. Now, you didn't have to add the word sex. You didn't have to add the word porn. Black girls, Latina girls, Asian girls, girls of color just were synonymous with pornography and hypersexualization. And, of course, this is one of the oldest tropes in America is to sexualize, hypersexualize children of color, girls of color. And um, I thought that was a great opening to talk about the way in which um, power works on the Internet, who has the most money, gets to control the kinds of narratives. And, of course, this is extremely important when we talk about the realm of politics, which I also discuss in the book, because those with the most money are able to control, for example, the narrative about political candidates. And um, there's plenty of really good research out here showing that um, when people use search engines, for example, to um, figure out something about a candidate, especially in local uh, kind of down-ballot races, what you'll find is that it's very easy for misinformation and disinformation to creep in there, and people. But people relate to those uh, results like Google has somehow vetted them with experts, and not that they're just taking money from the packs that pay the most or the organizations that pay the most. And this is why I wrote this book because I think that these big tech companies are a real threat to democracy, and they're uh, even more threatening to um, vulnerable communities and communities of color. And we got to stop and double click and see what's happening in these spaces and um, reject uh, these technologies full stop. Dr. Noble, uh, Dr. Noble, you know, uh, when you talk to these, to these tech folks, especially you talk about social media, like I, I listen to, Long interview with Jack from Twitter on uh, uh, the uh, New York Times podcast, and they often say that their apps reflect the habits of the consumer. And so Google may say that, oh, you know, this is what comes up on this page because this is what people tend to search for. This is what's related. What is your what is your book and your data, your research shown about the inaccuracy of that claim on the part of these tech founders? Yeah, I mean, this idea that what shows up in search is purely democracy in action, it's just categorically false. Because mm -hmm. what shows up on search is what's optimized and paid for the most, right? And this is one of the challenges that I make to Google and to other tech companies, social media companies, Facebook, you know, many of them, is that they're interested in um, shareholder value and profit and um the most racist and sexist and um, uh, titillating disinformation and misinformation is actually quite profitable. 
so they don't have an incentive either to take down content that is harmful to communities because it's it's a big uh, it's a big money uh, play for them. And I think this is one of the challenges. Um, you know, if uh, even if we took the logic that what happens in these platforms is just democracy in action, well, what does that mean when you're only 13% of the population? You never get right. to control your own representation because you will never be in the majority to enact that kind of democracy in, on your own behalf. And when you start talking about children or minors, it, it, it's even you know, more dreadful. So these are these are really important questions to me that we need to be interrogating. And and even as you're speaking, and let me apologize for not calling you doctor because you earned that That's PhD. Fine. Yes, Thank no, you. no, no. It, it is important, and I rarely do that. Um, so, as as I'm thinking what you're saying, there's an argument right now to remove the uh, electoral college, right? One man, one vote, and I get it, but it goes back to representation. And this is supposed to be a nation that takes care of the least of these built on this Christian ethic of widows and orphans and being this kind of, you know, wonderful, humane society. And I think we're learning. uh, Most of us have known it. Most black people have known it, uh, that that's a lie. Um, But I think we should still aspire to it. Right. This idealism of America, what America could be. And so what you're saying, I think, is super important because as we reexamine this election cycle and people are like, ah, oh, I don't I want to get rid of the, the Electoral College. But you got to vote to do that, to vote people in who are going to uh, it's a it's in, in the Constitution. We got to change that. You know, do you even know how to do the things that you want to change? So as we start to study the numbers and the algorithms and I knew that about Google, which is why I don't use Google. Actually, it's not my search engine. And even the other search engine that I use, I usually go two pages in because I know that even that now, because that's the model. So, you know, give us some tools to to help us craft the kind of world that we want to live in. Uh, It's such a, you know, great opportunity to be thinking about the world we want, because there's in every direction, there's so many things that are what we don't want. Right. And I, um, I do think that it's, it's important for us to imagine the kind of futures we need and, um, Certainly, uh, representation is very important, but I think that what the opening of something like my book does in Algorithms of Oppression is questions the fundamental logics of do we want predictive analytics determining how our lives go, what opportunities are available to us, what is foreclosed from a possibility, and this to me is much more important than even thinking about the ways that, you know, voting is so important because for example, let's say um, you have uh, all your data, everything about you, all your moves, your health information, everything about you is being fed into a variety of different predictive analytics. And that then uh, determines whether you'll get into college, whether you'll get a mortgage, what type of neighborhoods you can live in, whether you'll even see ads for good housing that you might want, you know, in neighborhoods you want to live in, whether software will screen your resume in or out of the jobs and opportunities you want. Um, The extend and the reach to that, now your social network, the people that you know and the people you're connected to in your networks are going to affect the kind of possibility and the kind of opportunity that you have and also shut down. Now think about where we are. We're only we're only two generations out of enslavement. That's just a fact. That's not very long. 
and so you think about um, what it means to have uh, very little data, um, very little wealth, very little opportunity, and have that then all these kind of da- the data of the past used to predict your future, which is exactly what predictive analytics do. They are taking wow. data from the past to predict your success into the future or whether you shouldn't have success. And I think those kinds of things are actually so pervasive now in our society. We need to be voting for people who are deeply literate about these technologies, who have the courage to take on big tech, the way that abolitionists have the courage to take on big tobacco or big cotton. It's really crucial that we are electing people. And as voters, we become super educated about the way in which democracy and opportunity is actually being transferred out of the electorate and into these other kinds of processes that will be very, very difficult to intervene upon. Dr. Sophia Noble, middle name Moja, which I think is Unity yes. uh, in Kwanzaa, yes. uh, well, but not Kwanzaa, uh, Swahili, right? So somebody yes. thought about you um, a yes, lot. The book is Algorithms of Oppression. So what, what do we do? arm us how do we how, how okay. do we move in the world can we trick the system can we hack is there a hack give us the hack okay there isn't a, a magic bullet but there but education is so important for us so we can mobilize in our local communities and we can fight things like predictive policing facial recognition um, biometric tracking of us we can become we can demand in our local and um, communities and in our states much stronger privacy. We should, I believe, and one of the things we're working on at the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry that I co-founded with Dr. Sarah Roberts, we're working on ideas and proposals like reparations from big tech. What does big tech owe the public for all of the ways in which it's undermined democracy and helped collapse democracy? So we, we should be thinking about restoration, reparation, um, these are political acts. And of course, we should be, I think, um, just, you know, the one thing I will tell you that I remember uh, when I was in high school, the only people in my town in Fresno who had pagers was surgeons who worked at, at hospitals and the brothers in my high school. Do you understand what I'm saying? Black people, we are always on the front, the, the, the trend. We are pressing it. We know what's up before everybody else knows what's up. And so I think... We need to take that same sensibility that we have, and we need to be on the forefront of thinking about civil rights and human rights, the loss of them, protecting them in this kind of realm of big tech, too. And we are the people who, quite frankly, are the people who spot it. I mean, it has been women of color and LGBTQ people, scholars and journalists, women like me, who made these conversations mainstream conversations of resistance. So we see things that everybody else isn't seeing. We need to stay diligent in this space, too. I love that. What I love about these conversations, though, is that it balances uh, two ideas, right? On the one hand, it's disruptive. Like, we need to disrupt the status quo and figure out how to upend it so that it serves everybody it's supposed to serve because we're consumers of this thing also. But the pushback that often comes, even in conversations with companies as we talk about diversity, it's almost like that these ideas about doing the right things are in conflict with the oppression that has become, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, profitable for these companies. So from a company's point of view, when you're hearing this conversation, you know that you profit from these messages that marginalize certain groups. How do you convince that person to 
to see the the to see the benefits even from a profit standpoint on serving this demographic that's already using that platform or do you forget that convincing them of that and do you just disrupt the whole system uh, on its head well you know let's not forget other what we can learn from other industries you know big tobacco um, made a lot of money off of black people of, off of poor people right as their primary c- c- customer base even while they were simultaneously trying to protect their own communities. I mean, if you look at what tech executives do, they have their nannies, for example, sign agreements that they won't, they'll have no tech with their kids. They can't put their own children on the Internet in the very platforms that they work on and design. So we should be taking note of things like that. Um, I think that the moral argument about, you know, please don't profit off of us is um, – it's insufficient, all right? We actually need real protections from the ways in which these companies operate. And um, it is not going to happen just by hiring more programmers of color and more women of color. But, of course, we need to do that because those, in fact, many of those employees are the people who are walking out saying, I'm not going to put my labor in service of these dangerous and damaging technologies. So, of course, people who work in tech are incredibly important um, people to shift the narrative and the conversations. But at the same time, the, the restoration, the repair must happen because we are talking about, um, you know, when I was talking about what was happening to girls of color in search engines, the same logic were actually the logic that threw a presidential election. They were the same logic used against, for example, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, people were real like, oh, Sophia, that's so sad. What happens to black girls? But see, now we actually have real consequences for the way in which these unregulated, unmanaged um, tech companies do their work in the world. And I just think it's really it's not a moral um, plea to them to do the right thing. This is about the threat and the harm that comes from these platforms. And, um, you know, I guess I'll say I fancy myself more of an abolitionist in the realm of the people who talk about these kinds of um, technologies. Um, Maybe some things should be illegal. Maybe it just shouldn't be allowed. And it isn't a fait accompli that this is just how it's going to be forever. Mm. Dr. Safiya Noble, you can follow her at S-A-F-I-Y-A Noble because she is B-L-E. If someone's to pick up your book, Algorithms of Oppression, what do you want them to walk away with? What What is the power of them, you know, the average person? Because this is not a, you know, it's, it's numbers and, st- you know, it's it's different. You know, it's not a story that's being told, yeah. even though you do a masterful job. What do you want them to walk Thank away you. with? Well, first, if you pick up the book, I hope that you'll go to an independent bookstore. I try to send people to black bookstores to buy the book through that instead of through Amazon. Um, and that would be really a great way to use the technology in support of our communities and our small businesses. I think the thing that you'll walk away with when you read this book is that um, the things that you took for granted that you thought you knew about technology is, in fact, um, probably something you need to look more closely at. This book is written – I wrote this book so my mother-in-law could read it or so that my family members mm. could read it. You don't need to have a PhD to read this book. This book is very accessible in that way. You can listen to it on an audio book. But you, what it will do is have you think more critically about the way in which you and your children and the people you love um, engage with these technologies. And it will also give you hope 
that you we can imagine a different future. And I will tell you that <clears throat> there have been other futures. When I tell my students, for example, that probably the doctor who delivered me in the hospital had a cigarette hanging from his mouth, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they can't believe it. They cannot believe it. I was like, my mom was probably chain smoking while she was pushing me out. They just, it's hard to imagine new paradigms. And yet, we make new paradigms happen all the time, and they're hard, and it takes work and it takes time, but it's worth it. And I try to at least um, inspire that kind of imagination in the book, too. All right. We're talking with Dr. Sophia Noble, Omoja Noble. Yes. Uh, and Doma T. Pongo is here. It's Tech Tuesday, and we had a lot of conversation off mic as well. Uh, because I think this is super important. And as we draw the line in the sand about what's, you know, there's reparations and we we, we need somebody who's going to uh, be elected that's going to follow what we need to see happen. What are our tangibles and all this other stuff? Meanwhile, Skynet is here and they're listening to us. They're following us. They're filling in the blanks. Uh, they're, they're, they're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And we don't have too much control. So I'm grateful uh, for you doing this work and being an abolitionist, as you said, algorithms of oppression is the book. And of course, Domitis here, he had a question off mic. I was like, bring it on mic, bring it on mic. Yeah. You, I, I want to figure out what it is that we can do uh, as consumers to protect ourselves from the algorithms that curate what content we see and what information is taken from us. You know, I was telling you that in Gmail, they have this predictive text where you start to send an email and they put the words in for you. I went in my settings and turned it off but it let me know not only that they were reading and following my speech pattern, but there's also a bigger implication that these companies are coding the way we think, the words we use, the words we react to, and I find that very dangerous. So what would you say that uh, consumers can do to kind of turn some of these different things off that are injurious that we might not even know about or think about that deeply? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And for sure we need to be, um, incredibly literate about how to secure our communications as best we can. So you um, are exactly right that the predictive um, technology for speech recognition and pattern recognition happens through Gmail. It happens through listening um, in a variety of different ways. You can go into your phone, for example, and just look at your apps and see all of the apps that you've given microphone access to. Um, you'd be surprised how just by default, when you install new apps on your phone, you're giving access to your photos or giving access to um, your microphone. So there are very good uh, uh, tutorials. In fact, I will, I will remember by the end of this week um, at our UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, I'll put up on our resources page um, some things that your listeners can go and look for. It's just ways to, simple ways to try to secure your communications and some organizations that you can um, follow who will keep that information up to date. Um, you know, one of the other things that's interesting about what you're talking about is um, I have a colleague, Halcyon Lawrence, who studies, for example, Siri and Alexa and these kinds of devices who are also listening. And um, the ways in which, for example, black speech and other kinds of um, black dialects are not well understood. So what these, um, these devices often do is force us to code switch, quite frankly, in order to engage with them. And uh, so if you speak Patois to uh, Alexa, she's like, what? You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Also, she's not a she, she's a machine. It's a machine. 
So I think that, um, you know, there's so many interesting ways in which we are being taught to relate to these technologies to kind of anthropomorphize or think of them as human, um, giving them women's names, letting them be your servant, um, talking to them Mm. in particular ways. I have some colleagues at Stanford, for example, who study the way that children relate to these kinds of technologies where they bark orders at um, uh, what they think of as kind of female or feminized uh, technologies that they think of as like people. So there's a lot of very interesting Mm. psychological and other kinds of social dimensions that those of us who are critically thinking about technologies are studying and we care about because these what you're talking about is in essence is these are about creating different kinds of human engagements and interactions. And it becomes so subtle and so normalized that um, to me, this is again, um, worth taking a very close look at um, and thinking through what the extent logics of it uh, is that, you know, well, the algorithm told me that I'm not qualified for the loan. Well, see, when a banker told your grandparents that or your parents that in the 60s, mm. you had the impetus and we had the evidence to be able to do things like push for civil rights laws and um, to fight redlining. But when, um, as my colleague Chris Gilliard says, you know, when these things happen in technical systems, when the digital redlining happens, mm. it's very difficult to take those things to court. It's very difficult to prove because people believe that the algorithms and the AI are using the best possible data and information to make decisions that affect our lives in very, very real ways. And the opacity of the loss of our rights is becoming so normalized. And it happens, it's like death by a thousand cuts, you know? It's Mm -hmm. just all these different new ways of acclimating and socializing us. And I just think it's, um, it's unacceptable. And we need to be alert and be aware and organize the response. We're talking with Dr. Noble, Dr. Sophia Umoja Noble. How, how did you get that name, first of all? I'm, I'm fixated on it because I, I love I love that, you know, because when you look at you phenotypically, I would not expect you to have the middle name of Umoja. <laughs> I just would not. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so Gen X. You know, I really, um, if, you, if you look in the dictionary for Gen X, you're going to find me. So I came of age in my, you know, early 20s and my undergraduate um, years in kind of the the black renaissance that was happening at that time. You know, I would have the Africa medallion, you know, like the X-Clan in my Volkswagen, oh. you know, the whole scene. And um, I always felt that having a Swahili name was um, really better suited to who I was on the inside, irrespective of what I looked like on the outside. So my godparents and my mother um, gave me the name Safia Umoja. And um, and then when I got married to Otis, I took, I really picked him because his last name was Noble. I mean, isn't that the coolest name? He's like, <laughs> he's, he's, He's like the coolest person, and then he has the coolest yes. last name too. So it was just like uh, that. That'll work. So this nice. is how I got here. <laughs> what, how did? But how did they train you to care about these things? Because you know, a lot of times we're raised in these environments where they, you know, our parents want us to be more successful. They want us to have no obstacles. So, so they they raise us in a way that you know these things. You know, paying attention to this stuff 
could hamper your ability to do the things that you're now doing. So apparently it didn't work, but. (laughs) Well, you know, I was raised by a single mom. My mom was white. My dad was black. Uh, My dad was a professional musician. He was gone all the time on the road. I really didn't have a relationship with him until I was in high school and college um, and then very strong in adulthood. And, you know, when you're raised by, uh, when you're a black child raised by a white woman, and this is in the 70s, you know, this is before it was like a fad, before, you know, the Kardashians were doing it. This is like when people lost their lives doing that kind of shit. Oh, sorry. And um, and so I, um, I was very aware that I was different in this family, you know, like everything, the, the, all the things that happen in black families where people say things like, you know, you have good hair or this thing, those things weren't ever said in my family because the family that raised, I had curly hair that nobody knew how to comb. It was a mess. And so I had all the bad, everything you know, in that respect. And so I was very aware of my difference from, I don't know, two or three years old, as soon as, as soon as kids become aware of who they are and how they're different. And, you know, the other thing is my mom was a civil rights activist. She was, um, my dad had been a Black Panther. You know, my mom really um, took a lot of heat for having a kid who looked like me. And I was just so aware of those things, of, of, of racial injustice. And it was intimate. Racial injustice was intimate in my family. Um, so because I was the site of, of racial controversy in my family. And so that makes for, you know, it's one of the reasons why they always laugh and joke about all the, you know, light-skinned, militant, black women and black people. You know, part of this is because if we're raised in close proximity to white family, we become hyper aware of our blackness in a way that I think sometimes my friends, those just weren't even conversations they needed to have. You know, they just weren't in the realm of like the everyday. Um, so that, that of course, politicized me from a young age. And, you know, I went through a lot of stages, but by the time I was an adult and I could make my own choices, um, you know, I just felt that the the legacy of my parents in this world of doing hard things that, you know, their own relationship, racism was a factor and, and they're not, being you know married and those kinds of things I don't know I just I just those things are in me they're the fingerprints of my life you know that are all over me and they've affected me and and I care um I I care about people who are vulnerable and I have always felt that that myself that I was a vulnerable person in a lot of different ways and uh, I relate to that even though now I'm a middle-class professor I I still have these (laughs) this origin story these roots at UCLA. No, yes. this is uh, important. And author, of course, Algorithms of Oppression. And you're going to put on your website this week a uh, resource uh, page. Where can people go to get that? Yes. So we're c2i2.ucla.edu. We Wait, have so a resource so page there now. C2. Say it again. C as C, in cat. C as in cat. The number two. I as in internet. The number two ucla.edu. If you go there, we have a resource page already where, and this is, you know, one of the things that's so amazing about this center that we're co-founding and just getting started um, this year at UCLA is that we're kind of an outpost for people who are thinking critically about the internet and digital technologies. 
So you might go to all the other kind of big universities where they're really in love with technology. These are the places, the, the epicenters that sold us kind of a false bill of goods about this tech. At our center, we're the place that where we're going to help expose you to the research, the cutting edge research, and the people who are thinking critically about the Internet, thinking about race and technology and gender and um, democracy and what's at stake. So on our resource page, we have 15-plus books at the intersection of race and technology of people we think are amazing, doing amazing work in this world. You can go read their work. And we'll always keep that um, page populated with important things that you need to know about. Okay. And uh, I'm just so grateful to get to talk to you, Professor Hunter. I'm a fan. I, um, I think that, you know, you make these conversations so accessible and available, you know, to your listeners. And, um, you know, I aspire to be able to make my work accessible in oh. the same ways. So just really grateful uh, to, to get to be a guest today. Listen, I just provide a runway for people to do the things that they do very well, which you do. And as you're talking, the value of having somebody, because I, I think part of the reason why I do Tech Tuesday is because my hope is somebody out there is listening and their, their mind is awakened to the possibilities of something that they can do to contribute, right? So yeah, having black-led algorithms, is that such a thing? Like, I don't even know if that makes any sense. Is there a, such a thing as a black-led algorithm? Could there be a black-led Google-type search engine? Could, you know, can somebody build that? Would that solve some of these problems? Yeah, you know, there, were, there have been different experiments. There was a, a web browser years ago um, called Blackbird that was oh, about yeah. trying to... Oh, that was uh, Ed, Ed Young. Ed Young. That's my buddy. Right. Damn. I got, now okay. I got to re- reconnect with him. Yes. Yeah, you know, listen, black people, you should have supported Blackbird, too. You know, <laughs> and I mean, it was before the time. It was before the, I mean, Blackbird was ahead of its time because they knew something was amiss and they wanted to help curate, just like point people to relevant content for black people. But this was before people started distrusting Google. So it right. was just before its time. Now there's an opening because people understand. First of all, listen, if you don't know that companies like Google and Facebook, you know, some of their earliest venture capital and advisors were um, Homeland Security folks, CIA, you know, InQtel, which wow. is the, the, um, the venture capital arm of the CIA, gave Facebook, you know, early money when it was just getting started. I mean, I'm not trying to get silk-witted, but I'm going to tell you that we can do the homework, and I do point to uh, work in my book that you can read of the investigator, uh, investigative journalists who help us understand that these companies are arms of the state. The kinds of surveillance that they do on the state, um, you know, uh, uh, on behalf of the state, would be illegal. Mm-hmm. It would be unconstitutional. You, there's like, a, you know, so many different ways it would be illegal. But if it happens through a private company that has these kinds of tr- open transfers of data, then it's not illegal. And so this is why it also gets very confusing with the current kind of um, ways that the White House and the administration are antagonistic to um, big tech because they've actually benefited significantly from um, these companies. We're going to see how this plays out as Kamala Harris was selected, as you predicted, as his running mate. Which leads me to when you... Yeah, that just happened. You predicted it. Yes, you did. You, you get credit. You, you get credit, Dr. Noble. It. You get credit. Yes. I mean, yes. this is being recorded, right? 
Yes, it is. We have it. You said it. You said it. You said it was going to happen, and it's now happened. And I wonder how algorithmically can we help this ticket? Should we search? If we search Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and make that, you know, would that help? Yes, because let me tell you what. The one thing you can be guaranteed is already happening is a flood of disinformation and misinformation is going to be moving and is already. I'm on um, different national task forces around disinformation in the political realm, um, COVID-19, around a, a variety. Of, and black people are a major target for disinformation. So you can be guaranteed there's going to be a lot of information flowing about Biden and Kamala and their, um, th- that they are um, anti-black, that um, they, all of the kind of um, mass incarceration positions, um, law enforcement, linking Kamala in every way to every kind of um, anti-Black Lives Matter message that you can imagine, that's going to be flooding the Internet. And people need to be smart and understand, like, how racism gets weaponized, um, you know, to scare, first of all, non-black people, all right? So there'll be scary messages about black women. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, I think her laugh is really charming because I have a crazy laugh, too. So I'm not even mad. But, you know, that all the making fun of her, all of the ways, it's all coming. And um, we, we need to be smart and realize that a lot is at stake um, it, with four more years of the current administration. And, um, and just, I don't know, just don't be ridiculous. You know, let's, let's, of course, these candidates, electoral politics unto itself is not going to be the full answer to our problems. There is no That's question right. about that. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we just don't have to give a damn. I mean, we should, we can still... Do something. Do the best we can. That's yes, right. Yes, we can. What and we, we can go get this book, Algorithms of yeah. Oppression. That's right. Thank Dr. You. Sophia Noble, get her book, get her book, and go on the website. We're going to tweet out all the information, how you can contact awesome. her, and c2i2.ucla.edu, all of the dots. Hey, don't be a stranger. What? Listen, when you need a Tech Tuesday reporter, I mean, why? I don't know. I've... Listen, look at that. Okay. You know what? Smiz, Smiz, let's make this happen. Let's bring her in as a regular. Let's do this. I shouldn't ask you on air. I shouldn't ask you on air. Let me tell you about me. If I didn't want to do it, I'd say no. I'm that person. (laughs) I'd be like, nah, that's good. I say, we're covered. We got enough people. Thank you anyway, Dr. Noble. I'm sure you'd be great, but we're already slammed with too many people. I'm that person. Well, you haven't said no yet. No, I have not. No, I said yes. Yeah, we'll call you. 